This episode is brought to you by CEP Compression Australia. CEP Compression Apparel gives the user more energy, greater endurance and enhanced performance during activities. For a discount at CEP, use the following code online, local legends in running. Welcome to the Local Legends in Running podcast, where you hear the stories from local legends of Australian running that you've simply always wanted to hear. Today in episode 27, I interview ex-Australian ultra runner and current marathon course measurer, Don Wallace. Don's completion of a handful of the South African Comrades Marathon events speak for themselves. Not only has he finished the event multiple times of representing Australia, but has recorded a PB over the two-way hilly 89-kilometre course of 5 hours 42 up and a 5.47 down. That sub-4-minute K pace over serious hills for one quarter of a 24-hour day. Therefore, in this interview, it's no surprise that Don talks passionately at length and detail about the historic event and lastly, about his experience as a marathon course measurer around the country. So as always, sit back, relax, and enjoy hearing the stories of ex-runner, Don Wallace. Yeah, that's a lot better. Yeah. Ah, uh, yeah, I can it now. Yeah, I was missing. I like the mo, mate. I like the mo. Yeah, no, no I'm uh, what twenty six days through my November. November. Yeah, well yeah, well and I've, I've done it for fifteen years, I think, since I was oh, about right. twenty. Yeah. yeah. Hey, uh, welcome Fantastic. officially to the Local Legends In Running podcast. Oh. By the way. Oh, thanks, mate. It's great to have you on here. I think uh, I think it was previous guest Drew Williams who was talking about you specifically uh, coming on here. But then your name's come up a few times in some of the interviews, so I was keen to have a chat. All things running. Yeah, well, yeah, you know, I go back with Drew a little while. He's a good lad. Um, yeah, nice, nice young fellow. Um, and he ran the 500k relay with us a few times. And yeah, you know, oh. sure, a few more stories were swapped on on those tours. Yeah, I was, um, yeah, something I did many, many times and, and Drew came along with us uh, a few times there um, as, some, as a young fellow, most probably with um, Josh Hamburger and um, oh, what was another guy, um, Sweeney. Um, yeah, they, they were just fun to have these young lads along. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, no, he's turned out to be a nice guy and um, yeah, it's, it's great, going great. And it was great to see him at the Sunny Case this, this year, run a 231 first up. So great. Yeah, he won that event, didn't he? Um, Drew. Yeah, what was he second? Second, yeah, he was second, second to um, I'm just trying to think who won it. I was going to say, well, I was going to say Wayne, but it wasn't Wayne. Um, but yeah, he was second. I can't remember who won it now. Yeah, I'm forgetting myself too. Yeah. 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 
And then what about the names uh Wayne Spees, Chris Gale, Aiden Hobbs? Do they do they mean anything to you, those guys? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, most probably um uh, okay, Wayne. I, I I met Wayne a few years ago and, and he's just a lovely guy. Well, he's a South African, so um <laughs> there's some interest, common interest in running running there. Um and then um Chris Gale, um I, I, Chris Gale was actually a member of Ashgrove Rangers and and, and ran with our club back in the most probably late 80s, early 90s, and I've known Chris for, for a long time. And um, um, Aidan, um, you know, I know him. I, I've seen him around and, um, you know, he worked at the in-training for a bit there. And um, so, yeah, anybody who's, who's you know, I, I, I see everybody in running and, and anybody. I mean, I not at all the races nowadays, but I'm at all the main ones. So I get to see these guys and say, say good day. Yeah. Yeah, I just mentioned those guys because I'm I'm, I'm pretty adamant with uh, our interviews on here that they've brought up your name, maybe a few others. But uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to talking to you specifically about your comrades' experience too, like Wayne Spees. They're going to be super excited to hear about it. I don't think they hear about it enough. And um, no. and Wayne did allude to it, and it was a yeah. sort of a, a section within his. So I think it will just kind of uh, reiterate the uh, significance of the race and get those yeah. marathoners and ultra guys, uh, particularly those who listen in to, to get out there. And then also a unique skill that you have done is the course measuring of fun runs out there as well and how that works. And then as you mentioned, yeah. Ashgrove Rangers too, you've been a part of them for a, even before I was born. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, also, here we go, mate. Yeah, yeah. a bit on you. Where were you born and uh, are you happy to share when you were born? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I was born in 1961 um, in, 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 in Canberra, actually. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, my father was a school teacher and grew up in Papua New Guinea as a kid and and, um, and spent time in Broken Hill in New South Wales and and, um, and then Bathurst in New South Wales. And I went to university in um, Sydney at the University of uh, um, New South Wales. And, and, and um, when I finished that, I couldn't get out of Sydney soon enough. Went back to yeah. Bathurst for a while, but... Um, Bathurst can be very cold, you know, <laughs> very quickly. So after a while there, and, and you know, when I started my unit degree as a chemical engineer, they couldn't get enough of them. When I finished, you couldn't get a job for love or money, you know. But I did end up in Brisbane, and I found a job in 1984 here in Brisbane. Um, and, and it was great to sort of move up to somewhere nice and warm, and I sort of quite liked it and, you know, just got involved in the running scene um, then, you know. So, like, I, I played a lot of rugby and that when I was a kid, and... Um, but I was like 10 stone or 60 kilos, ringing wet, you know, yeah. and slow as a wet week. So I didn't yeah. really have much skills for rugby. Yeah. So after, and I played it right through uni, but after that, I thought I've got to do something. And I thought I'd do a bit of triathlon and a bit of running. And I started doing that. And, um, and you know, and I actually, when I was in Bathurst, um, a few guys were training. This was in early in 1994. There was a few guys there training for the Canberra Marathon, which was going to be the Olympic trials. And so they convinced me, I'll come out for a run one day. We do a long run. Well, actually, I rang this guy who I knew, a teacher that did some running. He hadn't taught me at school, but I, I knew he was at the school I was at, and he, he taught and he did some running. So I rang him up. He said, I'll come for a long run um, with you guys. And, and we went for a long run. And after about an hour and a half of this long run, I said, how long does this long run go for? And they go three hours. I go, oh, whatever. <laughs> and, and anyway, so I had no trouble keeping up with these guys. So... Um, they convinced me I'll come down and run the Canberra Marathon in '84, so I did that. I ran 2:52, and um, yeah, I was just hooked on it then. 
Yeah, yeah. Have you got family yourself? Are you married, kids or anything? No, I live with my partner. And yeah. yeah. No, we, we don't have any kids. It's, um, yeah. She's, um, as I say, she was a very good runner, and um, but she suffered a lot of problems with her health and that yeah. uh, after her career finished. And, um, yes, we haven't had that opportunity, but that's, that's sort of fine. And away from running, are you? Do you follow the sport much these days? And if uh, aside from that, what else do you do to fill time? Are you retired now? No, no, no. I'm, I'm working. I've got to work flat out, mate. Yeah, <laughs> I'm working. I love it. I, I love working. So I'm not too worried. I'm a computer programmer, which is a nice, easy job for a runner, um, and I really enjoy that. You know, because you're always learning. Um, and and since COVID, I've been working from home full time. I, I don't have a need to go to office, so. I live at a place called Peachester, so we've got an acre block up here. I grow a few veggies. I, I've got some nice gardens and things, and yes, life's life's great, you know, like that. Um, yeah, I mean, you can always tell how if I'm doing much running because if my garden's looking really good, it means I'm not doing too much running. <laughs> yeah. The gardens look yeah. a bit shoddy, and it yeah. means I'm doing lots of running. <laughs> I haven't done much lately. As I say, I had one bad heel, the left heel, and the right heel was just as bad. Um, and I should have got them both done together. Uh, uh, only just this year, I got the right heel operated on that. Um, but yeah, in the 80s in, in Brisbane was a great time for running. I mean, I, I'm the same age as Pat Carroll. Pat, actually, I'm about two or three weeks older than Pat. Oh, um, right. And, and there was a whole lot of guys from that era that were, were quite good runners. And, and you know, um, when I started running, you know, I, I think the first year, I, I, well, the first thing I did, did was join a club, which was Ashgrove Rangers, and I was involved with the club. And, um, you know, ran for them, and all I wanted to do was be one of the better runners in the club. You know, and um, and um, and once I got to that sort of level, um, you know, um, I wanted to, I'd run a few marathons. I wanted to make the state team because um, we'd have the national championships at mm. the Gold Coast. And yeah, um, by '87, I'd run a sub 2:30 at the Morton Bay Marathon, um, and. In 88, I, I tried to make the state team. I couldn't make the state team, even though I'd run 229 for the marathon or 229.50. And um, uh, th there was too many good guys going around. And um, uh, I ran the race anyway, way obviously, um, and competed. But um, I ended up um, coming the third Queenslander in that in that race in um, um, around a 223.55, I think, at the Goldie. Um, and, it didn't and, take long. <laughs> As I say, I was very focused about yeah. what I, I did when I when I raced. I, you know, worked hard. I knew, um, and I, you got you got to be brave too when you're running a marathon. You got to just go out there and, and mm. um, you know, I, I, um, I, I knew that that was my my event. I knew there was plenty of guys could beat me over ten k's and, and even over half. But I yeah. knew when it got to the marathon that I, I would have the strength to, to beat them. Yeah, just from but the you sent through your times too, uh, mm. PBs that is. And it, yeah, it seems yeah. like you, you, your shorter events, the, well, the longer you go, the better. And the comrades' yep. story is a, another thing that uh, reinforces that. But are you happy for me to yeah. read out those times? Oh, if you want to. Yeah. And you sent me through a 200 metre, so I want to hear about <laughs> that briefly. 200 metres, <laughs> sub 30 seconds too. Uh, yeah, it's pretty good. I reckon that's with a flying start. I reckon it's with a flying start. <laughs> Within a rep. So just, it just, exactly, it just shows you, you don't have to be, I was, my old man would say, you couldn't run out of sight on a dark night, you know? I was useless. 
Yeah, that gives me you hope. You I think I down... remember running at 26-something back in the day. But, um, yeah, you could I, go you down to any school oval. You could go down <laughs> any school oval and find some 14 or 15-year-olds that could run three or four seconds quicker. Oh, yeah, that. for sure. Yeah, so 1,500 metres, 407, 3,000. This is getting pretty quick now, I think, 838. Uh, but, you know, you've got to be mm. even a minute quicker these days to be competitive yeah. around the yeah. 730 to 40 yeah. mark and 720-something's a wide record. Uh, mm. 5K, just under 15 minutes, 14.59.9. <laughs> and I reckon it was 0.98, mate. <laughs> I reckon the quickest K in it was, was not much faster than 259 and the slowest one was not much faster than, uh, than through you know the high three and was that a track was that definitely five yeah, yeah yeah that's you, yeah. Yeah, that's on, on that was on um the, the main track at, at qe2 yeah 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 fantastic 10k 31 38 the half uh, 69 23 and you eventually yeah. got to the the marathon time of two twenty fifty nine, which yeah. I'd, I'd love to know. Would you know where that ranks within Australia as we sit here right now of all time? Like, of course, there's plenty ahead, but I mean, is it like yeah, even yeah. top hundred or? It's probably not. No, yeah, no, it's probably not. But guys, in if you have a look, say in Queensland, um, you know, you, you're most probably getting near the top, yeah, in the top twenty ish, I suppose. You know. There's Pat Carroll and and um, mm. um, uh, Michael um, Shelley, um, Andrew Leatherby, uh, Gerard Barrett, who was in the early 80s. Gerard beat you know, De Castillo to win the Olympic trials to go to the 1980 Games. And Gerard ran the Gold Coast a few times. Um, yeah, uh, Mick Inwood was 217. You know, Mick was around the time I was running, so you, you couldn't win a Queensland Championship when Mick was running. Um, and Peter Knowles run under 220. There's another guy, um, oh, I forget his name, a bit earlier on. Um, and now you've got a few guys that I, um, you've had. This yeah, Pat Tiernan. Pat Tiernan's been under there. Great, um, great. Um, and, and you've had uh, Louis McAfee. Um, Louis and, and um, yeah, and, and Karen Perkins run sub 20s. Yes, um, yeah. Another guy around at my era, Bob Nolan, and, and oh, Laurie Adams was the other guy. Laurie Adams won, I think, Gold Coast. Laurie was a 216 guy. Uh, I trained with Laurie a bit, and I trained with Bob a little bit. Bob, Bob was 218. I've just found so, a yeah, list, actually, I'm, as we're talking now. I'm trying to find your name. Top 20. <laughs> um, 225-something, wasn't it? Yeah, here you are. You're 159th, yeah, there you if go. this is accurate. Yeah, Oz dot run. Yeah, yeah. Could, be. could be. Yeah, yeah. so oh, uh, that's pretty good, plenty. mate. <laughs> oh, you'd at the, if you went to the goal look, in the goal at the Gold Coast in 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 ninety one. Okay, so at ninety one at the Gold Coast, I was the third Queenslander behind uh, Mick Inwood ran a two seventeen. Bob Nolan just beat me. I ran two twenty three oh one, and I was twenty third. Oh right, so, that's just pretty quick. Yeah. And the, most of the rest of the guys were Aussie guys, you know. There was plenty of guys running sub-220, you know, um, back in, in those days when we had the you – know, in the early – late 80s, early 90s when we had the, the, the Nationals at the Gold Coast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the the uh, 100K, the 639 mm. and Comrades, uh, mm. yeah, which uh, you've spoken about, 542 and 547. Mm. That was up yeah. and down, respectively. Uh, yeah. So do you think, like, do you look back at those 
times and achievements and comrades would be your your pick um or would it be well, something like somewhere between yeah, that five to marathon distance that you think's like relatively compared to others and pace wise and that kind of thing is stronger or you maybe even have more potential to pursue no i look the yeah i, I wasn't gonna you know I, there was guys in my club that were much quicker than me, 5Ks, 10Ks, you know. Now, but, you know, if you look at my comrades' record, I had five, I've run five times under six hours. Yeah. Um, Tim Sloan ran three times under six hours, um, but his quickest was only 5.57. Um, the fastest guy on debut is um, Magnus Mickelson. Magnus was a 2.14 marathoner and won the Gold Coast Marathon in a 2.21 year. Um, but he only ran under six hours the once. Um, Brendan Davies ran a down run, very good down run a couple of years ago. And um, I think that's it for, for guys at Comrades, you know? Yeah. Um, so um, there's been, obviously, I think Wayne's run this year was just fantastic. You know, it was yeah. a pretty long down run. And, you know, the guy's 49 almost 50 yeah um, yeah that was just insane, fantastic yeah. um, there's been a guy called ash watson run a low six hours on the up run a couple of years ago yeah um, i understand dion now i don't know dion's hard to oh pronounce. yeah it's for nokia yes. or something like that no, I, I follow a lot more of the, the road runners yeah. uh compared yeah. to the ultra guys okay. yeah. dion is very impressive he ran a 630 for 100ks in in um in um in in Sydney early this year, um he runs heaps of marathons. He he, he was going to go to Comrades before got canned in in the in the um COVID times. Um so he's 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 a sub two twenty marathoner at his best. Um he's he's a big guy. He's solid and but he's he's just I I think you know I, I'm hoping that he can go over there and run a good time next year. He thinks he likes a down run so I had a bit of chat to him. Yeah. About he's pretty it, so, young too, isn't he? Um, I think he's like in his mid twenties, even. Oh yeah, I'm not too right? sure. I think he might he's been around for a little while. He, I'd say he'd be in his early thirties. The early thirties, right? yeah, yeah. So he he could have a crack. At it. I'm just surprised other Australians haven't thought oh, I should have a crack at that. You know. Um, yeah, I think it just takes time, doesn't it? Time, years and years to progress to that kind of distance too, and risk of injury. Well, and, and like you said, a, a desire to to get out to these fast, flat, popular well, now yeah. marathon events and even road runs where they just yeah. want to be as fast as they can. I've certainly gone down that trap of pursuing the quickest events mm. um, and and getting away from the the kind of ultra events or even slower ultra. trail events too. Yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah, I, I don't, you know, there's been a big focus on trail running, which is a bit crazy, you know, yeah. people running super distance, which I think is crazy, but... Um, and, and I've done that sort of stuff. But, you know, as I say, I, I had progressed up. I was a 220 marathoner um, before I, you know, I most probably ran a few trail events, but um, that's got me running some, I ran a couple of trail events in Sydney, mainly because there's a bit of prize money there. You fly down and come back and get plenty of money in your pocket. Um, and and that, that race that I was doing in Sydney actually put me on to running that 100K in New Zealand. And and then then that put me on to getting some invitations to to race you know, in a few other places. So there's not much in the ultra game. Um, but, you know, um, as I say, uh, I'm still surprised that there hasn't been a few guys say, so, you know, I should go and have a crack at comrades. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
to give you a cup, I, I don't want to harp back for too too much, but when I went there in '94, my mate Robbie Meyer said, "If you win this race, and this was it was purely amateur, there was no money in it. I mean, there was the medals, but no money. Um, if you win the race, it was worth one to two million rand. Now, one to two million rand mightn't sound too much when you convert it to US dollars or Aussie dollars or whatever, but if you stayed in South Africa." you could buy a nice house in Cape Town, you know. All the Russians that won it, <laughs> you know, ended up yeah, living yes. in nice houses yeah. in Cape Town. Um, you would be looked up, you'd be set for life, you know. Um, so that's the sort, sort of thing, you know. Um, Kortov, in 2000, the guy that won it, the Russian, it was another guy, Russian guy, Kortov, he was a 210 marathoner and had gone to, the, he, he'd run, he was fourth at the Moscow Olympics, I think, um, and he broke the up, up course record and for breaking the up course record received a 100-ounce gold statue of the comrades. Yeah, that just, yeah, yeah, that just shows like... ounces of yeah. gold, you know. That's just interest of, of it in the race, you know. Yeah. So there's that opportunity. So, you know, I've just find it strange that other people haven't don't see that opportunity but yeah as i said to you um most probably really liked uh, yeah it was good to listen to wayne's um, interview and 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 he and a bit of his story at comrades marathon but I, I think um we need to put some things in perspective because i don't think a lot of people really you know here in australia we don't really understand the comrades marathon and and maybe as i say put it in perspective we're, we're it belongs in the world as, as, um, as you know, one of the um, great foot races. Um, and um, so, yeah, I just wanted to talk a bit about that. And, and, and as I say, we'll see how we go. So, um, so the first thing, you know, as I say, if we want to put it in perspective, now, in the last 20 years, something that's become big has been the, the, the world major marathons, you know, the, the Londons, the Berlins, um, the New Yorks, and, you know, London and Tokyo, um, they, you know, their, their races of 40,000 people nowadays, and maybe even more, I think 50,000 in London. Um, and, and Boston, I think, is up to 30,000. Um, and, and that's great. And, I, and people aspire to go to those marathons, and that's really great. And if you're, you know, a, a keen runner and may, maybe want to spend your holiday going for a race, um, you know, um, by all means, do it. You know, and I know a few guys from around Queensland that have done that. I, I know a few guys that have done all six majors, and that's great. But um, if we go back to um, 1994, when, when I first ran Comrades Marathon, it had a field of 14,000, um, 11,000 finishers. Um, Boston that year had 9,000. Berlin had about 11,000, okay? London was big, okay? And, and Tokyo didn't even exist. Now, Comrades Marathon started in 1921. There's only one race in the world that surpasses that. And that's Boston. It's it started right. in 18, yeah. 1897. Okay. So when we think about that, that's amazing that Comrades Marathon has survived since 1921 to this present day. 100 years it was um, two years ago, obviously it wasn't run. Um, there's been 95 editions. Obviously, there's um, no races held during the Second World War and things like that. But it has been held continuously for that period of time. Chicago Marathon. There was a Chicago Marathon in the early 1900s, okay, um, and, and that folded, and then Chicago came back and became popular in, in about the 70s when the running boom took off in America. Um, and you had 
the birth of Chicago and New York, or New York and then Chicago. Um, so that, that's two more of the big, big six. Berlin, um, I think, is around about that period, maybe late 70s and, and 1981 for London. Tokyo, 2007. So, as I say, that just puts um, comrades in perspective. And as I say, in the mid 90s, it was as big as the bigs. Okay, they have all exploded since the early 2000s. Now, why is that? And and why well, why is it called the Comrades Marathon for starters? Okay, so one of the South Africans that had gone off to fight in the First World War, a, a railway engine driver from um, Peter Maritzburg. And I think you're, you, you mentioned with Wayne, your mother comes from Peter Maritzburg. Yeah, yeah, Peter Maritzburg. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. So this railway engine driver comes back from the war and he'd fought in, in, in the northern parts of Africa and travelled long distances by foot as a foot soldier, you know, under, you know, really gruelling conditions. That First World War, you know, it's unfortunate we're seeing war on the TV nowadays and, and the death and destruction that goes on there. But, you know, that, it's nothing compared with the First World War, an absolute slaughter of, of young men and, um, you know, and, and, and fine young workers and, and that, you know, that went off to these far-flung countries. And not just slaughter with, with you know, the wars, uh, the weapons of machinery, you know, death through, you know, diseases, and, and et cetera, you know. Um, and so, like in Australia, when men came back from the First World War, they wanted to commemorate it, you know, and we ended up with the Anzac Day marches. Well, Victor Clapton's idea was to um, organise a race from Peter Maritzburg to Durban. Um, and, and that's what he did. And that first race attracted about 34 runners, I think, that ran it, you know. And then that race, as I say, continued on. And um, through the 20s and 30s, and it was quite a popular a sporting event in South Africa, but, um, you know, it didn't really grow until about the 60s. Um, and in the 60s, you were getting, um, early 60s, about 100 runners. But by the end of the 60s, it was about 700. And then that running boom that occurred around the world in the 70s, you know, comrades went to a thousand runners and, and by the end of the 70s, over 5,000 runners. And then in the 80s, um, when, as I say, that running boom really took off worldwide, that's when it became, became big. But um, at the same time, you've got to remember, South Africa in the 70s and 80s wasn't the country yeah. it is today. Yeah. And... Um, Apartheid existed in that country, and that was apartheid was about separating whites from blacks and from Indians and people of color and Asians. There was rules for each race of people, um, and you know it was a very unfortunate um, way of life. But um, this had had just sort of moved along, and lots of laws had been um, put into place, and so you had a very um, strange country, and that ostracized South Africa from the rest of the world. And, you know, they were removed from the Olympics, complete, keep competing at the Olympics. Um, there, there were Commonwealth Games was to be held in Johannesburg and the Commonwealth Games organizations wouldn't allow it to go ahead because they wouldn't allow people of color to come and compete. Um, so at that point in the 70s and 80s, where there's all this sport going on and the, the South Africans wanted to play sport, they, they, they love their sport over there. They're rugby mad, they're soccer mad, and they, they love their cricket, you know? Mm. Um, and that's, they're the big sports there. They wanted to play sports and, and, and running's also got some interest there. Um, and they couldn't. And, you know, there was big protests here in Australia in 1972 when the Springbok 
came and toured Australia. And um, this New Zealand All Blacks went and toured South Africa in the, in the early 70s, um, which led to the African countries calling on the IOC to ban New Zealand from the 1976 Olympics in Montreal. And they didn't. And that led to a boycott of 34 African countries that included Kenya, you know, Ethiopia, some of the great distance running countries, you know, boycotting that 1976 Montreal Olympics. Um, and as sad as it was, a lot of that pressure, there was a lot of economic pressure and a lot of that, that sporting pressure really um, helped to way, pave a way for the end of apartheid in South Africa. So by the late 80s, um, they started to find a way forward that the, um, the, the white national party started to talk to the ANC. They, in 1990, Nelson Mandela was released from prison um, and he'd been there for over 30 years with lots of his buddies. Um, and, and, and South Africa started to open up. So in that 70s and 80s, as the comrades grew and became a big race, it was a big race in South Africa. And, and um, one of the you know, famous runners, Bruce Fordyce, as, as a 21-year-old university student, wins the Comrades Marathon in 1981, I think it was, you know, and then went on to have nine more wins at Comrades and hold the up and down record. And, and so he became a legend of the sport, okay, over there. But um, there wasn't any competition from overseas runners. Um, mm. A Frenchman, I think, in the 70s, late 70s, John, uh, John Mark Belloc, um, went over, he was the French 100K champion, and he went to South Africa and ran the Comrades Marathon, maybe because he just needed a challenge and to challenge himself against good other guys running that sort of distance. He went back to France and the Athletics Association in France banned him for life. That was the way things were run in sport in the days. You know, it was amateur sport and, um, you know, there was, um, yeah, as I say, that, that was the situation. So, so by 1993, um, Comrades Marathon was then open because of the changes in South Africa. It was open for international runners to run. And um, the, the president of the International Association of Ultra Marathoning actually rang me in 93 and said, did I want to go? Um, but it was very shortly before the race and, and I had other plans and other races and I, I, I didn't go. And he did manage to get a couple of runners there, but um, it, it was, I think, three guys. But one of them was Charlie Doll, a German guy, who ended up winning the 93 down run. Um, then in 94, I knew, and Malcolm had spoken to me at the end of 93, he said, look, in 94, we want to get a team of, of international ultra runners to go to Comrades and run in 94. Do you want to run? And I said, yeah, I'd love to go there. You know, I'd, I'd been... Um, you know, I knew about the race and um, a, a South African fellow had given me a tape of it once, a videotape, and I watched Fordyce win one of his classic races. And, and you know, from then on, it just sucked in. So um, so Malcolm rang me again and said, do I want to go? I said, yes. And um, so um, in 94 was the first time that, you know, we had some real international competition in the Comrades Marathon since, since I, I must admit, there was some during the 60s, there was some British guys and there was even a, an Australian guy um, who, who, um, in, in the 60s, I think it was, um, a, a guy by the name of um, Graham Watts. Um, and he um, finished 10th in, in the race. Now, most people wouldn't know Graham, but his, I think people would be aware of his daughter, who was Kathy Watts, 
and she was an Olympic cyclist and this Olympic cyclist, I think she was the first woman from Australia to win a gold medal in, in road cycling. Um, so, and Graham, unfortunately, um, uh, passed away out running in, in the sort of mountains around, you know, the high, the high Alpine mountains in Victoria where he got caught out somewhere and um, died of exposure. So very sad, but um, anyway, as I say, there was some pommies, there was even a couple of Kiwis, but it's hard to tell whether those guys were going there to compete or they actually were working in no. South Africa and ran the race. Um, so 94 was was most probably the first year it was really open to to international guys and um and and in april 94 i think they had the first free elections where in in south africa and mandela was um voted in to power and so so i, I was fortunate to go there as i say with they, they had a team of six guys um two russian guys um konstantin santeloff who was the world champion over 100 k's in 92 and 96 now, I saw not Santa Life in 93 at the World Champs, and he ran 36 minutes for the last 10K of a 100K race. Oh, jeez. was a machine. Yeah, he was and that, that would include hills too? Um, well, it, was a, it was a loop course. It was in Belgium. It was fairly flat, but a few ups and downs. Yeah. You know, he, he won the race by just sitting with them to about 90K and then you know, 36 minutes for the last 10. You know, so... Um, so Constantine was in the team and he'd run heaps of 100k races. Um, there was another Russian, um, Alexei, I can't remember his last name. Um, the other two guys in the, the team, were, there was two French guys, um, uh, Roland Vilmanov had won the world 100k champs in 1990 in, um, in, in, in the US at Duluth. And um, another Frenchman, uh, Den Dennis Gack, who, who was a 63700 k runner. Um, and Charlie Dole, the German guy, who was also the German 100K champion and won Comrades downrun the year before. And uh, I was there, I was a, at the time, the Australian, um, I'd won two Australasian 100K championships and, and that's an Australian record for 100Ks in 1992 at, at 6 hours 39. And um, where was that at, Don? That was in New Zealand. So yep. um, the previous record was... Um, Trevor Jacobs held it at about seven, seven, seven hours and seven, so seven hours and nine minutes or something. So I was the first Aussie to run under seven hours. And if you do the maths, uh, four times, uh, four times a hundred is is four hundred. Okay, four hundred is six hours and forty minutes. And that was my aim, just to run hundred k's at four minute k pace. You know, um, when I did that race, and um, so that was good. Um, and as I say, I did it a couple other times. I had another two wins around about 6.44. And um, so, as I say, um, um, so I had the opportunity then to go to South Africa. So maybe we'll talk a bit about the race itself. So, because um, people might not understand, because it's the race was from Peter Maritzburg to Durban originally, um, after a few years, I think they decided let's, also run in the reverse direction. Now, Peter Maritzburg is at about 820 or 30 metres above sea level, pretty much the same height above sea level as, say, Toowoomba here in, mm. in Australia, yeah. in Queensland, okay? And Durban is beautiful down on the beach there. You know what? Well, it's beautiful when you're down on the beach. You don't have to go back too far to you <laughs> find some, some not-so-beautiful areas in Durban, but there still is some very nice areas in Durban. Um, so... 
we have a, a run from Peter Maritzburg to Durban, a down run, and a run from Durban to Peter Maritzburg, an up run. And now the other thing to consider is there's not too much flat along that course. It's not like here in Australia where we have that coastal plain and then you get to the mountains and you climb up them. You're pretty much climbing uphills straight after the start. So, so when you're doing an up run from, from Durban, and which I'll just talk about the up run, I suppose, because that's my, my favourite. I did four of them. You know, you start off there. Um, it used to start at six. I think it starts at 5.30 now to add an extra hour to the race time. Um, so you start off just after dawn or just in the in the dawn and you'd run out onto a freeway and then you start to climb slightly up from a freeway through a place called Tollgate. And then you might look up somewhere early on in the race, you know, and you'll see um, a comrade's race organisation sign. And that sign will say something like 80 k's to go. Okay? Yeah. Now for every yeah. kilometre up the road, you will see the next sign. 90, you know, 79 k's to go, 78 k's to go, you know? Um, so that's something very different to when you're running a marathon. Oh, yeah. You always see one, two, three, four. Now it's counting down the distance to go. So Yeah. So, so Don, I've actually, I've just, um, as we talk now, got it up yeah. on the Google Maps uh, from Durban to Peter Maritzburg uh, as travel in a car. Mm. Is there a specific route it takes off the main okay, roads? Yeah. Yes, so it runs along, basically runs along what's called the, the old main road. Yeah. Through a place called, it goes up through Cowie's Hill. Yeah. Um, and, it, and it goes up through Pine Town. Then you've yeah, I've up. got Pine Town. So the first yeah. hill's Cowie's Hills. At Cowie's Hills, at, that's at 16 kilometres. You're 300 and something, 350 metres above sea level. So can you imagine in the first 10 mile or, or 16 k's of the race, you've climbed up over 100 metres higher than Mount Cooper. Okay? Yeah. And um, the top guys, we're hitting that at 60 minutes, you know? <laughs> um, then you dip down into Pine Town, it's flat through Pine Town, and at 20 k's, you've got the next big hill. So there's five big hills along the course, okay? So this is the big five, you know, which they match with the, the big five um, animals there in South Africa. So the big five are cowies, um, early on, and then you have Fields Hill, which is about three kilometres long. Um, then you have Bothers Hill. Bothers is a little bit hard to define. It's you, You're just rising all the time through um, a place called Westville out there. And then um, you come to halfway at Drummond, and straight after halfway at Drummond is, is the, the most probably the highest and, and steepest hill called Aichunga. You're out in the countryside then, and then you get to the top of Aichunga, you, you come down a bit, but you still hit hit a high point in the in the course at a place called Almost Road of about 860 metres above sea level before dropping down a bit. Yep. And just before you get to Peter Maritzburg, there's one last hill, Polly Shorts. And Polly Shorts is, is about 1,500 metres long or 1.4 kilometres long and rises about 100 metres. Um, but, you know, you, you've got to navigate that after running 80 k's. So that... It's a bit of a description of the course. So you're running up um, early on along those roads, some of the freeways, and then you get off onto the freeways um, to go up Cowie's Hill. But there'll be thousands of people uh, standing on the overhead bridges across the freeways and lining the route as, as you leave, um, uh, as you're starting to leave the, the, the city part of Durban and, and head up through the, what's called the Brera and Tollgate. 
for Cowies Hill. And then when, when you drop down into Pine Town, the crowds will be, uh, you know, they, they won't be able to be contained on the footpath. They'll be, you know, in standing in the road, you know, and, and, um, and you, you're running through, a, you know, a couple of lanes of traffic to get through them. Then you go up uh, Fields Hill um, and as they continue on up through Westville, um, you'll pass a school there just, um, just on the edge of basically the edge of the urban area of, of um, Durban, you'll pass Westfield, I think it's called Westfield School, and all the kids will be out there on a sort of temporary um, stadium uh, you know, thing and, and cheering the runners along. And you know, they've been doing that for the last hundred years. And you're running on that same road, the old main road that the original runners for Comrades ran on, which was at the time obviously just a dirt road. Um, and then you get to, to Drummond at halfway, climb up Echunga, and then they get out to what's called Harrison's Flats. And, and, and the runners say, well, you know, Harrison's Flats is that lonely part of the race. But when you say lonely part of the race, it means that you're only going to pass someone every three or 400 metres that's pulled over on the side of the road for a picnic, you know. Um, and, and then as you go further along the road, you're going to come into a couple of the small uh, black townships, you know, these are just very small, just like a very rural, um, you know, side town that you pass through when you're driving out west in Australia, you know, but these are the, as I say, they're the black rural townships of Caddo Ridge. Um, there will be thousands of Zulus um, in, in the town, yeah, and the women will be yelling and screaming and, and this high pitch whistling thing, which you call utilating, you know, the noise will be deafening. And if there's black runners around you, it'll be even more deafening because they'll be cheering on their, their boys. Um, hey, uh, Don, and, sorry, sorry to interrupt there. Any idea yeah. of how many actually line the, the course? How many uh, supporters in, in the audience or crowd? Got no idea. But if somebody said in the order of hundreds of thousands, I would believe them. Yeah, yeah. Um, so. To give you, and once again, to give you an idea, so when you see the Tour de France, that's, you know, when you see the crowds that line the Tour de France, that's the sort of crowds mm. you're seeing, okay, along the route of comrades. Um, and there's um, just coming into Durban is, is most probably a bit sparse around Poly Shorts and that. You're, you're in, in pretty rough, bushy areas there. Um, there's not a lot of people, but you, there will be still people out on the side of the road. But once you get up Polly Shorts and and the run into the finish at Durban, um, you you start running along, um, and and once again I say the people are just uh, overtaking the whole footpath. They're pushed out onto the road. You know, I remember almost cleaning up a, a, a young boy um, who was trying to sell ice creams as I tried to overtake another runner. You know coming into the finish. And then for the last K or so, they, they need crowd control barriers to hold everyone back. And then you finish at an oval and, and that oval's gonna have, it's probably 10 or 20,000 people there and they're gonna stay there the whole day. Wow. Um, so that's the other thing with the race is that um, because in the eighties it became such a big event, it's televised 20, you know, 12 hours a day. 12 hours a day of television, um, just on the whole race. You've got guys sitting in the studios. They've got guys out on trucks, on the camera trucks. You've got choppers up in the air. You know, this is all going on with this this huge race at this at the same time. Um, and 
as well as the people, the people who watch it in Durban, you know, they'll just come out early in the morning, see the runners go past, and they just go home and watch the rest of the day on the TV. Yeah, and this is um, any anyone and everyone out there, you know, in Australia, if we use the, say, Gold Coast Marathon, for example, the, hmm. the supporters tend to be runners themselves or related somehow to runners out there. Yeah. Uh, we'll get yeah. the odd couple who I guess uh, simply want to check out the event, but is it pretty much drawing the whole uh, areas within those particular sections out there on the course? I would, yes, in, in especially in the tail, but, you know, um, I, I would presume even people would be watching it in, in the other, you know, obviously Joburg's a much bigger city. You know, Durban's a quite a big city, but uh, obviously Joburg, Victoria, the big, big cities. But I would think that you would, if, I wouldn't be surprised if you compare Comrades Marathon um, to something in Australia, we'd be looking at the same number of eyes on the TV as you'd see on the Melbourne Cup. Mm. Okay? If you can imagine that. So we've got a race that's going to attract people along the side of the, ra the race, like the Tour de France, and eyeballs on the TV like the Melbourne Cup. And, and that's what it is. I mean, the guys that are running the top times, they're, you know, they're their household names in South Africa. Um, most of these guys will be training for at least half a year, maybe the full year, full time. Okay. Um, and well, that was the situation in the 80s and 90s. And, and um, it, it's most probably still a bit that way. I'm sure some of the guys, I'm sure that Wayne was training with, with um, the Ned Bake team. They, they would be fully sponsored and hmm. training full time. Um, so that gives you an idea of the race. And this, so the, but there's other unique things about Comrades. So one, as I say, one of those unique things you're running along 54 k's to go, you, know, you get to Drummond, <laughs> come out of Drummond, you've still got 42 k's to run, you know. Um, aid stations along the way, there's 50 aid stations. Some of the aid stations are four, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if they're two, three, four hundred meters long. You know, and there is everything you need in the aid station, bananas, oranges, there's water, there's drinks, there's a Milo sponsor at an aid station, you go through there, you can have as much Milo as you can drink, you know, um, so you, they, they have uh, water troughs, um, because it's, uh, well, the 94 race was very hot, and, you know, you, these large water troughs, you just put your sponge in, if you had a sponge, mm. you're carrying a sponge, because they gave one in the race pack, um, or there was a big bag of sponges, and you just put that in, sponge in and sponge off. I mean, we used to have sponges in races in Australia, but you know, the, the, yeah. you know, the happy police got rid of them, and you yeah. know, too much risk of risk of whatever. H, uh, uh, no, it was um, hepatitis, you know, really. <laughs> um, you and know. are there sections there for the elites that are organised for any kind of nutrition or hydration? Um, no, no, you, you don't need it. You, I ran, I ran the 2000 race pretty much unsupported. We had a little bit of support in 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 '94 because we were in a team, but the top teams had their own guys out there. So if you're running with the top team, and I've had, I've had um, them support me, so um, I, I made contacts over there, and um, you know you'd have maybe some guys get about say seven or eight places along the the route. They might give you some an extra, you know, special drink that you might want or whatever. But um, you don't really need it, as I say. There's there's plenty plenty out there for everybody, you know. Um, and guys are cooking up their barbecues, which they call a briar, along the side of the road. And you know, um, you can have anything you like. As you know, for the back of the packers, I, I I knew an old guy, and he'd he'd 
he'd run along with a group of guys and he'd say, you know, I feel like a hamburger, you know, <laughs> as he's running along. And, and the next thing, this guy would pop out with a hamburger and give it to him. But, and the, his friends around, or the runners around him would be quite amazed. But, you know, he, he said, you know, he'd already planned a couple of weeks in advance for the guy to be out there and have a hamburger ready because that's what he'd want as he's running for the day. So there's no so, need to carry anything then? It's, it's all available no, at the stations? No, yeah, that's, no. that's really cool, yeah. But look, the, the elite guys are running at, at 340, 345 a K. You know? yeah. um, there's a section there um, late in the race from about 18 K, uh, 20 K is actually at the highest point in the road, uh, highest place in the race called Almost Road. And there's a bit of a downhill section that takes you down to what's called the Mushapini, which is just before you come into Peter Maritzburg and you run up Polly Shorts. Fordyce has been clocked at 320 a K through there. Okay, I ran the three Ks in in, 19, in 2000. The three Ks from 18k to 15k to go. I ran it in 10:35. So that's 3:32 a K yeah. average. Yeah. You know? So um, I've never had time to eat while I'm running at that pace. But um, yeah, those, you know, I'm sure the back of the packers will take along their little bum bags and things like that. Yeah, yeah, I guess that was probably a question directed yeah. to those kind of runners. But yeah. there's no need to. I say 54 yeah, aid stations. Yeah. It's about 1,500 metres between each one once you get going. Yeah. Now, the yeah. other thing about comrades too, so that, that's just um, the race, okay? So it's the people. So if you wanted to run the Gold Coast Marathon, what do you have to do? Just get online, put in an entry, and off you go. But if you want to run the Comrades Marathon, well, this was in the 80s and 90s, and, and, and I don't know if it still exists, but if you wanted to run a Comrades Marathon, if you lived in South Africa, you have to run a qualifying event. So all of the runners that run Comrades would have run a marathon, often in the middle of summer, to qualify for Comrades, okay? And it's the times aren't extremely hard, and, and, and the qualifying times um, are more lenient with age, okay? But every runner has to have run that qualifying marathon. And they will boot out hundreds of entrants that try to enter without their qualifying. You know, they'll check these things. Now, not only that, every runner, or this in 94 and, and in the early 2000s when I was running it, every runner is a registered runner with a South African running club. Okay? So it isn't just Joe Blow, I feel like, going yeah. and running a marathon. Yeah. They join the club. Okay, they wear the club singlets. They all run. You saw Wayne wearing his Ned Bank yes, singlet. Yes, I did. Know? Yeah. Um, there will be clubs, the bigger clubs from Pretoria and and um, Johannesburg, with four or five hundred runners in it. I had a good friend, uh, um, and this is a, he was a good runner from around Brisbane back in the eighties and nineties. Um, Peter Connolly, I think he was British, but he'd spent a fair bit of time in South Africa working, and then came out to Australia. And Peter said to me one day, he said, yeah, well, I just ran for a small club in Joburg called the Pirates Club. And he said, we'd only have 100, 120 runners running in conference. Yes, it's so big. Yeah, it's big, you know. So once again, you know, um, and the guy, the top runners will run for, you know, some of the top clubs. Savages is one of the top clubs in Durban and, and the Rand AC, which... Bruce Fordyce ran for in um in, in Pretoria was a very strong club and um but then there was these sort of as it got a bit commercialized in the late 
80s and 90s, you know, you, you had the big um, sponsors like Mr. Price and now Ned Bank coming in and, and putting teams in the race and, um, you know, and, and that's all sort of interesting. But but once again, yeah, there was a, there was a medal for the, the first team. So the first four runners across, you know, cumulative times across the line would, would win, a, win a prize. So that was highly thought after. So that's another thing is, is, is every runner, as I say, has run it. Now, the other thing is too, when you run the marathon, so Wayne enters the marathon, he's given a number. So Wayne Spies enters the Conrad's Marathon, he's given a number, 25035. So he's no longer Wayne Spies anymore. He's Wayne, 25035. Okay. Mm. Next time Wayne enters the race a year later, he's Wayne, 25035 again. And again, and again, until Wayne has now run 10 Comrades Marathons and Wayne gets a green number. So now Wayne 25035 is only ever going to be the ever Comrades Marathon runner to have that number, 25035. That's his for life. There's never going to be a, a Fred 25035, okay? And how do so, those numbers start? Are they starting at a, uh, they start, continuing well, at a certain number for any reason? Well, okay. So um, they started off, the numbers started off in the early days and, and then they, and some of them carried on and, and were, um, and, and, and were reissued. Okay. So in, in about 96, I think it was, I'm driving around Salisbury as, as a delivery driver and I go into, um, a hardware delivery place. I can't remember the name of the guys, but anyway, the, the guy out the front says, oh, there's a guy in the office wants to say day to you. Um, and okay, I'll go and say day to this guy. He wants to talk about Comrades Marathon. And anyway, this guy's name's Miles Bodle. And Miles says to me, I'm going to run the Comrades Marathon. And I said, yeah, that's great, Miles. It's great. And um, he said, and I started talking to him. And I said, and he, um, and he said, Oh, by the way, I, oh, I might have asked what his number was. And he said, my number is three. Can you imagine that? Yeah. <laughs> I was blown out of my mind. <laughs> but his father, um, Alan Bodle, had run the Comrades Marathon in the early 40s and was issued the number three. And he oh. ran it 10 times. And that became his number. And he was able to then to pass it on to his son, Miles. Oh, so you can um, pass so it on like that, yeah. Yeah, so that was that was just purely amazing. Number one belongs to a guy called Clive Crawley, who has run 42 Comrades marathons. And I think, well, maybe they weren't. There was, a, there was two of them that had run quite a lot. One guy did it, you know, I don't think Clive was, but I think the other guy had done them consecutively, you know. Um, but anyway, so if you're a real runner in South Africa, to be considered a real runner, you you need to have run ten comrades and have a have a great <laughs> number. <laughs> and I mean, if you're exactly. really serious, I suppose you you you've run twenty and you've got a double green. Yeah. So yeah. it's it's insane. Bruce Fordyce's number is two four two um uh, two four oh three. So I was very lucky when I went there in in um in ninety four because. What happened was the Comrades Marathon Association invited me and, say, five other guys. Um, some guy in the office went through and um, he had six runners to find some numbers for. So he just went through the whole list of numbers till he found the first lot of six consecutive numbers. So I was issued the number 
1902. So I was really happy to have just such a nice low number. And, um, yeah, and, and you know, I, I, I ran with that number. I ran five times. I think they reissued it to somebody else later on down the track, but um, yeah, that was all cool. Yeah, so what, as an ultra runner during that time, what, what really drew you to that event? Was like it very, very well renowned around the world at the time that it was the event to get to? Well, what drew me was, as I say, I'd had a, a South African friend here, a, a guy that ran with the Nunda Athletics Club called Brian Barclay. And um, Brian, at some stage, remember about 1988, lent me a, a, um, a recording, uh, you know, a VCR recording of, of, of the, the, um, one of the comrades' races. And Ford, Bruce Fordyce won the race. And just watching the race, like I think the last three hours was on this, it was a three-hour video, but it had the last three hours of the race. And I watched the last three hours of the race. And... Um, and it just, you know, it just uh, was something is well, if I ever got a chance, you know, I'd go and do that race. It, it just, um, I, you know, I was a, a decent marathoner, I suppose, you know, but I knew that um, my shorter distance stuff wasn't great. So, so, you know, stepping up from the marathon was a fairly natural thing for me. And, um, you know, as I say, um, I ended up uh, sitting in Australian record when I ran, ran my first 100K race in, in 92. I'd done a couple and, 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 through that that race, I had had, had a contact or Malcolm Campbell, who was the president of the International Association of Ultra Running, was at that race in '92 in New Zealand, and um and obviously he he wanted to get a team of of people that sort of represented some international guys to come to that race in '94. So we ended up there. Um, it was it was really a great experience. Um, I I. They actually sent me a ticket, and, and I think they looked for the cheapest ticket they could get, but I had to fly via Hong Kong because they got a ticket on Cathay Pacific. So it was a long trip there, but I turned up in um, Johannesburg and, and we got to the airport sometime early in the morning. And um, I was greeted by a guy, and his wife worked for the Comrades Marathon Association. And um, the guy's name was Robbie Meyer. And um, Robbie um, was looking after the team while we were there. and. I was the only guy in the team that spoke English because we had two Frenchmen, one, one who spoke no English at all, a German guy who didn't speak a lot of English. Um, and because there's a lot of fair, fair bit of German speaking, and it's very similar to Afrikaans. Um, so he, he had other managers that he was working with in, in South Africa because he'd won the year before, um, and two Russians that had their own translator and, and spoke zero English. You know, I spoke more Russian than they spoke English, I think. Um, so Robbie took a liking to me and, and straight away he became my, my manager um, for everything I ever did in, in South Africa. Not that I really needed a manager, but um, you know, Robbie was a great guy and, and, and he looked after me um, in the next race when I went over there in 96. So um, they looked after us. It was really good. Um, we had a team singlet and, um, and there was a, a team of South Africans that they selected to represent South Africa for us to race against during the race. Um, so we get to the Johannesburg airport. There's, um, I was just amazed, you know, there's all this media stuff. They took you in, they did some interviews with you. They wanted to find out a bit about your running thing and that, you know, they obviously didn't know much about me. They would have known a bit about some of the Russian guys. Um, a lot of this is played back during the, the coverage of the race. Um, for the top guys, not for me. <laughs> um, yeah, they're interviewing the top runners here, Nick, Nick Bester, um, who, who was a, 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 a um, 
a favourite runner, a favourite runner there. Um, obviously, Bruce Fordyce was running it again. Um, I could see Bruce wasn't in, in tip-top shape, but um, the other guys in, in the South African team were Thierry Fiery was one of the black runners. Another guy, Thompson Maguana. Now, Thompson um, had, at that time, had the world record for 50 Ks, 2.43. It was five minutes faster than anyone else had run for 50 Ks. Thompson had run that to win the Two Oceans Marathon. I think his Two Oceans Marathon time, which is a 56K race in Cape Town, was mm. about six minutes faster than anybody else had run. And Thompson um, had gone through 2.14 for the marathon in that race. Wow, that's quick at the in time. In a 56K race. So, yeah. you know, so he was in the team. Um, I don't, I'm thinking was Sean Micklejohn in there? I'm not too sure, but a couple of other top runners. So it was quite interesting. And so this was the first time that, you know, there was a ser some serious contenders. There's some, a couple of Russian girls there. And, and the two girls ended up finishing first and second. Um, and, and a couple of British. They didn't get six um, women, but they ha had a couple of uh, British girls as well. Um, so there was a fair bit of interest about us, and, and they looked after us very well, took it out to some nightclubs and put us up in a really nice motel in, in Durban. And, you know, we got there and race day. So, but one of the big things in 94 was that <laughs> the media, the South African media, they're, they're very parochial, um, if not arrogant, you know? Um, and one of the commentators, a guy called Mark Green, I'm sure his name was, um, he's there on the TV, you know, before the race saying he didn't give the international runners any chance. He said, so these guys don't know what they're doing when it comes to comrades, you know? Now, they had no understanding that, you know, most of us had run 100K races, you know, which was another 13K longer than comrades, you know? And he doesn't know yeah. what conditions we'd run in. And, you know, we'd, I'd run the one in, in, in New Zealand. I mean, you know, you'd see a cow and a, a couple of sheep along the way, you know, let alone much support crew, you know. Um, so they didn't give us much. Now, there was another runner at that race that they totally underestimated, a guy by the name of Alberto Salazar. Oh, yeah. Okay. So Alberto Salazar, for anybody who isn't historyed in marathon, yeah, had won the New York Marathon in 1981. Um, and eight, or, uh, so he 80, maybe 80, 81. He won it three years in a row in the early 80s. Okay. Um, and his time in, in 81, um, 208, 13, was considered the best time ever ran in the world for the marathon. He'd broken Derek Clayton's record. And it was only some time a bit later on when that record was broken that they they realised that the course was about 150 metres short, I think 148 metres short, okay? So Salazar was considered to be, I mean, the guy was a 27, 20, 10K runner, um, 208 marathon at the time. The only guy who, who had run any, uh, as uh, he was about 10 or 12 seconds quicker than Deke's time that Deke said, I think actually most probably, not even that, less than 10 seconds quicker than Deke Estella time that Deke had said at Fukuoka which should have been the world best in 81. Um, so Salazar was you know, this great uh, American marathon hope. Um, if you have not read the book, The Jewel in the Sun, which is about Salazar's race against um, Dick Beasley at the Boston Marathon, which Salazar won in, I think it was in 82. Um, and it was on a hot day. And, and, you know, at the end of the day, they, uh, so after the race, Salazar collapsed and they, um, 
you know, they they had him um, packed out, I think, in a coffin of ice to um to revive him and and um, you know pumping intravenous fluids to him. And um, he was a he was a very dedicated Catholic, and mm. you know somebody was <laughs> going to call the the priest to come and do the last rites on him after that race. So yeah, so in the early 80s, um, you know, had Salazar the best marathon in America. You had Deacon Stiller, obviously in Australia, leading up to that um, LA Olympics in 84, you know, you you had um, Seiko who was who had won Boston three times and that, and this big race became the, the Olympic marathon in, in, in 1984. And um, it was when, you know, the, the world wasn't dominated by the East, East Africans as, as marathon running comes. Yeah, yeah. And, um, yeah. And then history, of course, a fellow called Carlos Lopez wins the race, and 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 Salazar is is shattered, you know, and um and really fails to to do anything after that. But the next time we see Salazar is is ten years later in in 1994, and he turns up very quietly in South Africa, and nobody and people just wrote him off. He'd done nothing um, uh, races that they, they could look back and say he's done this or that. I think he'd done his longest run. On a, on a on a treadmill, you know, of about five hours or something like that. So, so the race starts and um, people are looking at you know the Bruce Fordyces and I think the Russians were were under scrutiny. You know, the, um, Nick Bester they, they would certainly be looking. They, he'd raced against Konstantin Santalov the year before, so I think they would be looking at them. But but they also know their own paces and. Comrades works like this. There's going to be some guys who's just going to go out for a, a nice flat out morning run for as long as he can so he can stay in front of the TV cameras yeah, for the TV yeah. runners. And the TV runner was a, actually a white guy, um, Dirky Moorman, who took off and flew up the hills. He was a mountain running champion in South Africa. A couple of um, black runners went with him and, and that they stayed out in the front. But um, Salazar didn't know that that happens, and, and he went with them, you know. And and then Salazar kept going once Dirky Mormon uh, pulled out, and 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 once the couple of black runners you know, dropped off, Salazar's goes through halfway in two hours forty three. <laughs> Nobody had gone through halfway that fast before, you know. Johnny Halberstadt, who was a two twelve marathon, had gone through in two forty four, and when Bruce Forsyth beat him, you know. Um, so nobody believed anybody could go out that fast and, and still win. And as I say, Santalop and Best uh, was in a, in a big chase pack, but they were running their own race. And they, Salazar, I think at one stage he was over 10 minutes in front, um, which was massive. And then Salazar got to about the last 10 Ks. He was still um, six or seven minutes in front. And it, as I say, it was a very hot day. Um, he was taking on a lot of water. He was wearing uh, a, an ice thing around his, his neck. I'd never seen one of these things before, but it was just a, tied around his neck. And um, yeah, obviously the, 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 the people up the lead were, 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 um, were helping him, were support, you know, supporting him with you know, fluids and things like that. Um, so Bester started chasing at about 10K to go. Saladar's last 10K. Now, this is a guy that's run 27.20. His last 10K was 44 minutes. Okay. Okay. So he was shattered. And, you know, was, as I say, it was a really hot day. He was shattered, but he held on. Nobody has ever lost comrades. If they've got to the top on an up run, if they get to the top of Polly Shorts, 
Everyone who's got the top of poly shorts first, it's still another seven Ks to run, has won, okay? And that's what Salazar did. Bester ran 38 and a half for the last 10 Ks, and he finished about two or three minutes behind, less than three minutes. So um, Salazar time, I think was 5.38, okay? So that, that was the 94 race. So as I say, I was in a team with the Russian guys and, and these French guys, and, and there was a few other international guys there besides Salazar. So Salazar became the first non-South African runner for some time since some of the British guys in the 60s to win it. Oh, sorry, the uprun. Sorry, Charlie Dole did win the previous downrun. Um, Charlie Dole finished in the, in the top, top um, he was maybe fourth or fifth. Um, Nick Best, as I say, finished second. Theo Rafiri, uh, the black South African runner, was third. Um, uh, Denny Gack, the, one of the Frenchmen, finished in the top 10, maybe seventh or eighth. And the rest of them, I think, oh, sorry, there was another guy, Peter Carmers, and a Swiss guy who'd won the Davos Marathon, which is a mountain race in, in Switzerland. He, he finished um, in the top four or five as well. Um, so I think four or five of the top guys were internationals. Um, uh, my race, I, I went into the race a little bit um, concerned. I, I hadn't been racing that well before I left here. And I, I think I, I'm quite sure I was low on iron and iron was creating a bit of a problem. So I just took off. I'm, um, I'm going up Fields Hill, the second hill, at about 20 k's, and, and you realise you're in a big bus of people. So in the race, you have what's called a bus, and there's no bigger bus at the front of the, the, the race than the Bruce Fordyce bus. And I realise I'm in the Bruce Fordyce bus because as the runners spread out a bit going up Fields Hill, next to me is Bruce Fordyce. Um, you know, so we get to the top of Fields Hill, the pace picks up again. Lots of guys in the bus go past me. Um, and I'd been given advice by a guy a couple of nights before the race. He said, if you get to Fields Hill and you're feeling good, you know, he said, and the pace picks up, just take it easy. You know, there's still 60 Ks to run. You know? So I, I took that advice. I said, I couldn't go at the pace these guys were going. So I took that advice. I, I got to halfway at Drummond on the, in, a, in about, not in the top 60. Um, I get I, I over Achunga, that's a big call, most probably um, really didn't see anyone on Achunga. But once I come down Achunga, I wander Harrison's flat and I'm getting in my rhythm and strive and I'm picking up a guy and I'm picking up a next guy, the next guy, the next guy, you know? And, and so it goes on. And then um, later in the race, as I say, it's a nice hot day. I don't mind the hot day. I um, raced to here in Queensland. I yep. don't mind the hot day. Um, I'm coming down to the Mushapini as you, you, you come up to the bottom of Polly Shorts. And just as I'm coming down to, to there, I see a runner up ahead of me, a short guy with blonde hair in the white Rand singlet, and that's Bruce Fordyce. And so we turn and start going up Polly Shorts. I'm in 20th place at this stage. And I pass Bruce on the hill. Um, I get over the top. Um, I pass maybe one, one or two other runners. And then the run into town, um, I passed mainly just some black runners late in the race, um, including Thompson Maguana. Um, I passed uh, the Frenchman Roland Vilmanot. I was probably about 20 k's out. Um, about most probably similar, uh, very close to where I pass him. I see Santel off the Russian standing by the side of the road, you know, just looking at, at what's going on. Obviously pulled out. He, he most probably never raced well after that. I mean, he raced so hard into in 93 and 94, he must have just smashed himself up. 
Um, and so I'm thinking I'm the um, I'm there. I'm in I'm in that team of guys. I'm most probably the third or fourth guy. Well, I should run as quick as I can, you know, because you know, I'm not just there for me. I'm there for the team. I'm there to Malcolm um, Campbell has invited me to come. You know, I've got to do my best for him. Um, I've got to do my best for the Comrades Association. Um, and I just run as hard as I can to the finish. And I, I come into the John Smut Stadium. I almost run up the back of a guy as you run up this ramp. You had to run up this ramp and, and onto the grass and then round to the finish. And I finish in 12th place. Um, and I just break um, six hours, so 5.59. Um, so I'm fairly pleased with that. But um, um, so the next thing in comrades is with the finishing. Everybody who finishes gets a medal, okay? So the medal, I'll send you a photo. The medal is, is yeah. small. Um, but I'll send you a copy of the medal. Um, if you finish under seven and a half hours, you get what's called a silver medal. I sent a picture of a silver medal. And when you see that, you see it's about the size of a 20 cent piece. Oh, so and then small. the other yeah. medals and the other medals that the runners get are also the same. They've all got the Comrades logo, which is you know, the Mercury guy with the wings on his heels. Um, and um, everybody gets that medal. Now, the other thing with Comrades Marathon that distinguishes it between any other race, I think anywhere in the world, is there's a cutoff time. It was 12 hours in the early days, and then it became 11 hours. Okay, so 11 hours. Um, there is, as I say, in 94, 11,000 finishes. In the last half hour, there was 3,000 finishes. 3,000 finishes in half an hour. That's 100 people crossing the line every minute. And at the 11th hour, the chairman of the Comrades Association stands at the finish line with his back towards the incoming runners with a starting gun and fires it in the air. He fires it in the air. Then they put a tape across the finish chute. Actual barrier comes out across the finish chute. There's two people that will end up in the newspaper the next day. One will be the guy that crossed, or woman, that crossed just before the finish. Yeah, yeah. The last one to finish the race. The second one will be the person who is on the ground closest to the finish. So if you can imagine that, that, that in the last 10 minutes, there's a thousand runners, there's got to be a thousand runners that are still 10, maybe 15 minutes from the finish. Oh, it's and it's brutal. You, if you're in on that wrong side of that line, you've not finished the Comrades Marathon. You haven't run it. You can just go home. There's no medal. You're not recorded as have run, as have, has run the race. Yeah, okay? you may, may as well say so, nothing. You, you may as well be nobody. So it is that brutal. And there's other cutoffs along the way that they enforce as well. But um, even for that silver metal, a cutoff there, you just see this huge rush of people and people are dragging people, yeah, to cross the line. In 2000, it became a 12-hour cutoff, okay? It changed things a bit, actually, because... In the other thing with finishing in, um, in five hours 59 um, is important. Um, so my first race in 94, finishing under six hours. I, I did finish them all under six hours, which was nice. But when it was a six o'clock start, 
he also became part of what was called the morning club. Oh, yeah. So the morning club was anybody who finished under six hours. But I suppose nowadays the morning club is anybody who finishes under six and a half hours. Yeah. They start at 5.30. Um, and what so, sort of pace anyway, is that cutoff? The 12-hour cutoff, what sort of pace are you holding over the course? 12, 88 Ks. So it's not, 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 not that quick. But, you know, I mean, you are going to see guys in 2002, I think it was, I saw guys coming in. They... They, they, these guys, even if they slimmed down, they would have looked good in the front row of the Springbok rugby team. They were huge oaks. How do they do There that? was two guys. There was, there was three of them together. So there's three guys. The, the one in between the two guys is strung. They've got, he's got, they've got the arms of these guys over the shoulders of two other guys. You know? The two guys are carrying this guy. One of them got one of his arms each over their shoulder. This guy is strung over him like a hooker in a, in a rugby pack, you know, and they are dragging this guy. They've got their other arms holding his shorts up to keep his legs off the ground. This guy is unconscious, okay? They are coming into the 12-hour, the, the cutoff, which was at 5.30 p.m. then. This was on Scott's, uh, on the race course. And these guys are maybe about 200 metres from the finish, and they've got um, a minute, a minute and a half to cover that 200 metres, dragging this huge guy. I mean, I'm talking 20, 120, 130 kegs, you know, no joke. After a while, these guys get to maybe about 60 to 70 metres from the finish. They realise that they aren't going to drag this guy over the line. What do they do? They just drop him and jog through. You're not going to waste your medal. <laughs> You know, your chance and a medal to, to save this guy. That's crazy. This, it's, it is absolutely crazy. And was that, is that for safety or to actually have him achieve the comrades? If he's dragged over unconscious, that's still counting. That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> if, um, I think, you know, there was a, a case of um, a woman. They've got a silver medal where they carried, you know, I think her husband actually carried her in his arms or shoulder, over his shoulder to cross in under seven and a half hours to get a silver medal. Jeez. That's fine. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, but that's, that's what it is. It's, it is absolutely brutal. Like in 94, so if we go back to 94, as I say, it was a really hot day. When I got there, I needed a bit of, you know, just a bit of medical attention. They, they took us off, um, go to the medical tent. I mean, there wasn't a lot of people in there. But um, I think you might be aware, because your mother came from Peter Maritzburg, but Natal, most probably a third of the population of Natal are Indians. Mm. Okay, the British brought the Indians yeah. over there to work in, in the plantations and things like that, and they took them everywhere in the world. And, and of course, Mahatma Gandhi, um, who was the founder of the Indian um, independent nation, um, Mahatma Gandhi, when you go to the middle of Peter Maritzburg, there's a statue to him because Mahatma Gandhi had come to, to Peter Maritzburg as a lawyer and, and um, learnt a lot about. Um, uh, the, the, the process of, of gaining independence and, and, and protesting against um, the rule of, of the British, basically, uh, and later took that back to, 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 um, to, to, um, to India. But So there's a lot of Indians in there. And so the, um, this hospital tent is set up and there are these Indian porters with stretchers just 
continually ferrying in prone, you know, prone runners. It's, it's like a scene out of, you know, some Raja <laughs> Kepler, you know, Gunga Din story, you know, it's like a war zone. So um, it's, it's just amazing. So, um, so that's 94, the, the, the 11 hour thing. So that was really good. So you know, I, I was happy with, Happy, you know, just to go there and experience and, and have a race. Maybe not my best race. I, I, I had a few better races later in '94. Um, so, more on that. I went back. I didn't go back for the down run um, in, in, after that. Um, but I, I had other races in '95. So '96, I did decide to want to go back and have another go. So um, I, I knew I could run better than the 5:59. Um, and, and, and I'm quite sure my iron levels were just low that it caused a problem. Mm. Um, and so 96, I must probably my training wasn't great. I had some problems with um, uh, um, a bit of uh, in my hip, um, a bit of uh, um, sciatica and stuff like that. Um, but I got there in 96 and, and I had my mate Bobby Meyer look after me and, and we raced again. Now, 96 was a nicer year. The weather was finer. It was a lot cooler. Um, and so nice hard run and... Um, once again, um, I, th I think a bit of the shine came off the, 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 the arrogance from the, the South Africans because after Mark Green said that the international guys, you know, didn't know how to run comrades, um, I think it took um, about to about 2015 or 16 that the next South African won an uprun. <laughs> the Russians just dominated it through the late 90s. So 96, there was yeah. a Russian called um, Gresham that won two upruns. Um, and yeah, he was about a two sixteen marathoner. Um, later on, you had a guy called Leonard Shetsov who won ups and downs. Um, but yeah, international guys just dominated. So in '96, I go back there and um, just running hard and 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 the same sort of race, um, but so much better conditions. Lots of good guys, lots of international guys. Um, it, it, uh, there's an American guy in the top ten that year, Tom Jones. Um, uh, as I say, Gresham, the big Russian, uh, won it. Um, same thing, I got to the bottom of Polly's, um, oh, most probably well ahead of where I was in 94, um, and, um, but still um, around about 20th place when I get there. Going up Polly's, coming into town, I pass about three or four black runners. And for about the last 30 Ks, I've been dueling with this big Polish guy called Karmazan Bach who was running for Germany and he was the German 100k record holder. And I was a bit surprised when Cummerson goes past me at the top of Polly's. And I thought, wow, you know, I'm going to have to just dig in a bit, you know, and I just waited to the next bit of a slight downhill and just gave it everything I had and, and overtook um, Karmazan and a black runner that was running strong with him. And then, you know, once you overtake somebody, you just, you just don't look back, you know, just the last 5k, mm -hmm. you just, grind it out that's the sort of runner I was you just grind it out to the finish and um, the noise coming into the stadium you don't know what's going on but I come into this um, up the ramp into John Smut Stadium once again and I hit the grass and and as I come onto the grass with about 150 meters to go the announcer on the on the PA says and from Australia here is Don Wallace in 12th place five hours 49 so, uh run 10 minutes quicker and I'm in the same place, 12th place. Now, a South African guy, um, Norrie Williams, who's quite, quite famous, 
associated with the race and commentator and coach and whatever. He he said once, he said, you know, a silver medal is a silver medal. You know, it doesn't matter whether you run seven hours 20 or six hours 30, it's still a silver medal. But, you know, there's nothing worse than a silver medal if you've got, well, there's only one thing worse than the 12th place, having the second silver medal. And that's most probably having the first silver medal, you know, coming 11th twice would probably be yeah. really burn you, you know. That's the way I look at it anyway, you know. So that sort of really burned me, you know. I sort of, um, yeah, and we'd sp I spoke with uh, Robbie and, you know, we sort of thought anything under 556 before 96 would have got you a gold medal, okay. Oh, now we haven't talked about gold medals, but the top 10 runners will get a gold medal. Yeah, that's okay. what you mean by silver. Yeah, yeah, 11, silver yeah. and then gold. So yeah, gold medals have been happening since most probably the early seventies. Um, now you say, oh, that's nice, but you look at the silver medal. It's most probably as I say, looks like a twenty cent piece. Most probably only worth about five or ten cents. Um, but the gold medal is what we call a, a cougar rand. Cougar was the ball president of South Africa, and a cougar round is one ounce of solid gold. And that's the gold medal. So once yeah, I found this out, it becomes a bit prized, you know? Yeah. So I come back to Australia. I didn't really run much in 79, 80. I, was, I had some injury problems and things like that. Um, I really had some problems with my heels, uh, my ankles and things like that. And eventually in 99, I had some surgery. I mean, at the same time, my, my partner, Nikki Carroll, was, was starting to run really well. And, and when I say really well, um, you know, she ended up um, in 97, she ran 2.33 at the um, Las Vegas Marathon, um, and which was great. And then um, she started, uh, Dick Telford coached her and, and took her to the Paris Marathon in, in 1998, and she runs 2.27. And becomes the second woman yeah. in Australia to break two hours thirty behind Lisa Rondiki. So, yeah, that was really good, and so it was a lot of support for Nikki then, and um, and that was great. Um, but as I say, in 1999, once again, Nikki was running well. She ran the Saka Ladies and was fifth at the Saka Ladies, which was a, in a, a, one of the top women's races in the world. And this was when you only had, well, you had races that were women's only in Japan, especially. So they're very fair. Um, you know, she was fifth there and then she was fourth in London in 99, um, you know, two hours, 25, 50. Um, so supporting her was really important then. And um, my running took a bit of a back seat, but in 99, I eventually got an operation on the left heel and that allowed me then to, to run again. And so I started off early 2000 and just did some really hard training comrades and just focus I, I was a guy that could just focus um that's how i got my marathon time slow oh yeah just focused on comrades and and just really train the house and the other thing with the top runners i'll talk about how many kilometers they run so you don't talk about how many kilometers you run a week you talk about how many kilometers you run before the race which used to be at the end of may but then moved to um about the second week of june and yeah the top guys are running four thousand kilometers in that period. Um, so I'll be running 4,000 kilometers in training over that six month period. Oh, six months, yes. Yeah. yeah. It's, yeah. yeah. Um, it's not quite six months, it's five and a half months, you know. 
Um, so, yeah, I got to that level and, and just focus on comrades. I was super fit and very focused and went there in 2000. And um, unfortunately, my good mate, Bobby, Robbie Moy, had passed away then, but his brother um, looked after me in, in, um, in Durban. And, and um, I had a bit of touch and go before the race. I had a bit of a calf issue and it, it played up badly and I just let it settle down. And I, I knew that if I got it to settle down and once I started running, I'd be right to the end of the race, which I was. Um, and just went out as hard as I, I think I could. I most probably, I can't remember what we went through. I went through halfway, most probably about 248 or 249 um, through halfway. And, and then I, was, I knew I was always strong for hanging on good in the last part of the race. And probably about uh, 15, 16 k's from the finish, there was official on a, on a motorbike. And, and she indicated then, I think, that I was in, in, in 10th or 11th place and I passed a couple more runners. Um, but when you're right up the pointy end, you don't pass a lot of people. Mm. Um, and, and I knew coming into the finish, then I was in eighth place and, and I finished in eighth. Um, and most probably the, the seventh place was maybe still a minute and a half in front of me. There was no ch chance of catching him. Um, so that was great because then, then I, I, I earned a gold medal, which was, I suppose for me, just just yeah, quite satisfying. Um, I, you know, wasn't a top runner, but I was a runner that just you know, if you work hard enough, you'll get some reward. And I went back in two thousand one, run that one, run my only down run. Um, I, I did run five forty seven, but that's not good enough. Um, yeah. Uh, to to get a medal, especially on the down, the the, the, the black runners are much better on the down. Um, I think the you need a bit more body mass for that all that uphill running than, than, than they have. So um, it was dominated by the Russian guys and, 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 and other European guys for a while. Um, but I went back in 2002 and um, really 2002, I was getting pretty tired. Um, you know, it's, it's, my training wasn't as solid as maybe 2000, 2000, 2001, but just had a bit of luck that day. I come down to the Mushapini and um, I was running well. I was running with a couple of black black runners at that time, and I, I was feeling a lot stronger than them. And, and the official that told me, I think I was in 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 twelfth, eleventh. I think at one stage I knew I was in fourteenth place, and I passed a couple of guys. And I knew at the bottom of the Mushapini, just before we start going up Polly Shorts, that I was in eleventh place. And I thought, well, that, you know, it's good. I just you just got to keep pushing on. You never know what's going to happen. And as you approach. You go approach Polly's, you go across a little bridge and do a, a big right hand turn. And as I did this right hand turn and turned around the corner, there's this big Russian guy walking up the road. And I'm there. Thank you very much. <laughs> you, know, you can't, you don't, you know, you're not gonna get a medal if you have to stop and walk. Walking, yeah. Because you've you've got to cover this race in, you know, under four minute K. So um, yeah, I, so I, I was just lucky. I passed him, and, and then I passed another um, uh, runner um, going almost oh, probably about five k's out. I passed actually the guy who'd won the previous down run, a guy called Andrew Clay. Um, I passed him, and when I went past Andrew Clay, I thought, well, he's a down runner. He's going to have plenty of speed. I'm just, <laughs> I just ran as hard as I could. I was probably ran a, or I um. 340k for a couple of k's here, um, which you could along that bit of road, and um, you know got down and, and came in once again um, 
just a couple of minutes slower than in 2000, but um, another eighth place. So yeah, just happy, happy with that. So it was all good. So as I say, when you do that, then, uh, then they give you a gold medal. Now they don't give it to you straight away because they did some drug testing and stuff like that. And they gave yeah, you a yeah. replica thing, you know? Um, so my first gold medal, I actually got it at the time of the Sydney Olympics because they wouldn't post it out to me. Um, and that's because, uh, um, you know, they don't trust anybody in the post. Um, but one of the guys that came out to cover the Olympics with um, South African TV brought it out. And I met him at a motel in Sydney and he just gave it to me. Um, and, and then the second one, just this girl turned up with, in Brisbane with it. But um, if you like that, I've got it up near the camera. So that's that's one of them there. It's not big, but that's it's, oh, yeah. it's weight. It's, yeah, it's pretty uh, similar to the silver. Yeah. It's it's exactly the same metal um, made by Harmony Gold. It's got the yep. little thing on it. And um, yeah. this is the one from 2000. It weighs most probably slightly, I'd, I'd say it could be slightly more than an ounce. Is that handed to you at, directly at the end? Like, I'd, no, I'd no, no. Be, as I say, losing that. This, this, no, no. These metals appeared in Australia. This one, as I say, someone came out with South African TV. Yeah. Brought it out to the Olympics, so that's, yeah. I didn't get it till the Olympics. Yeah. The other one, um, this girl was coming that they knew was coming out to Brisbane, and she brought it out, and um, you know, I just turned up at Tawong and walking flower unit, and this girl had this medal yeah. for me, you know. So, um, but you know, they do present it you the the replica thing, um, uh, um, you know, at the presentation at the end of the day. So yeah. Now this one from. Uh, 2002. I've weighed it at about 1.3 grams, so yeah. it's well over the the one ounce of gold. So I think at the time I won them, it was worth about 400 US. Um, I don't know what it's worth about 1800 US at the moment. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I don't think I'll be melting them down or cashing them in. Yeah. So Don, people now wanting to run the comrades, is there any prerequisites to get across there or anything? If there isn't, is there anything you recommend a certain distance that they've run or total mileage like you were talking about that, uh, yeah, you'd put no, forward to I, them or? You just need, you if you if you train for the marathon, you can run the comrades marathon. You know, yeah. That's, that's all. I mean, and, and, you know, I would be looking at the you don't have to do any qual. I don't think international runners have to do any qualification races, so it's very. It's not that expensive for people in South Africa to run run it, but they'll charge it a lot more. You know, um, they were charging around about 100 USC, I think, in the early 2000s when I, I ran it um, to enter. So they'll charge you a lot more, but then they look after the international people. They, they'll put on a hospitality tent at the end of the race for international people. You know, with free beer and food yeah. and you know, so it's very nice. You know? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Hey, do you yeah. want to finish anyway. quickly on the uh, yep. the course measuring yeah, sure. side of things? You've done it for a, a number of years now. Have you stopped yeah. uh, doing that for the fun runs in the last few years, or are you still a part of that process? Well, I don't do many fun runs, but most of the marathons, are, you know, most bigger marathons need to be certified. I mean, you'd be pretty crazy if you're running a race that isn't certified. So um, I've been doing it, and I'll, yeah, I'll be doing it. I, I've certified maybe five or six races this year. Yeah. Um, I've been doing Gold Coast since the early 2000s and, and Sydney Marathon, I measure that um, since early 2000s. So we had a lot of work in Sydney this year to because um, it needed to be recertified because it elapsed. Once something's certified, it's only certified for five years. 
um, and it elapsed during that period of COVID. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of work there to be done. I, I do a fair bit. I enjoy doing it. It gets me opportunity to get to those races. I, I often, the big races I certify, I usually go along and I'm involved at the lead of the race, uh, looking at, uh, just making, I'm there to make sure that everything runs smoothly out on the road. Um, yeah, so how, what does that job. process look like? How do you actually measure the, the Yeah. Okay, so we measure um, with what's called a Jones counter. I might have yeah. Been sitting on my desk, I don't. Um, so it's a counter that you put on your bicycle. And each revolution of the, bikes, the bicycle wheel, that'll count, I think it's 26 counts. Um, okay. So a count now becomes about nine centimetres long. Okay. Now, so you've got a counter that's counting as you ride on a bike. And what you need, the process you go through, and, and people can just look up calibrated bicycle wheel, you know, and, and they'll find the information about it. But what you do is you, you set out what's called a calibration course, which you measure along a road at a set distance. Usually, I usually use 500, 400 metres, sometimes 300 metres, because that's all you can fit in. So you've got this absolutely known measurement of 400 metres, say, um, that's been calibrated or that you've measured with a steel tape. And then you ride that on your bicycle four or five or four times, you know, and from that, you, you take the average of, of, of the counts and, and you'd convert that from 400 metres to 1,000 metres. How many counts have I got in 1,000 metres? When I do that with my bike wheel, I'm up to now 11,100 and something counts per kilometre. Okay? And then we also multiply in a safety factor of one metre for every kilometre. So when we measure a, a 10K course, it's 10 metres long. And when we measure a marathon, oh, okay. it's 42 yeah. metres long. And that's just a safety factor so that if I measure it and another measure came, came along, I had to re-measure it and check it because someone set a world record on it or something like that, we should be fairly close. Now, by using this process, okay, so we calibrate, we measure. When we finished um, the measurement, we come back and we re any measurements, we come back and we recalibrate. We take the average of the two calibrations, which is, a, as I say, around about 11,000 uh, counts in a, in a kilometre, so we're measuring down to an accuracy of nine centimetres for each count. And then we figure out the distance of the course from that. And then we go, after we've measured the course, we go and adjust it. You always need a, an out and back sort of section on a course to get it adjusted to the correct distance. Yeah. And yeah. so that's that's a process. So to give you an idea, I should do some measuring of the Gold Coast Marathon. We'll normally start that five or six o'clock in the evenings. And okay. the reason there, because... As we measure, the traffic will get lighter and lighter and we'll finish up 11.30, 12 o'clock at night. Um, and that's most probably covered about a third of the work I've got to do if I had to do every course here. And that's you um, on the I, bike, is it? or Me measuring on a bike, yep. Yeah. And so you, because you're on a bike, you can ride at, say, about 20 k's an hour and you, can, you need to be able to take a nice, the shortest possible route along the road. So once you get very familiar with the courses, that, that helps, you know. But the shortest possible route across the road might be, you know, diagonally. You might be, um, yeah, for instance, um, to measure across the Sydney Harbour Bridge, we start on the western side. We come up on the western side and cross six lanes of traffic uh, to go through the southern toll, where, where the old toll booths were on the southern side, because that's the route that runners take, and that's the shortest line. So we, I've got to measure that, you know. So we don't do that in peak hour traffic, you know. In fact, yeah. you know, when we've done it, we just shut down the bridge and go out there, and I'm out there with somebody, maybe some police on a bike. Yeah, that was my question. Yeah, you escorted <laughs> in some way, yeah. Sometimes, yeah, yeah. Back in the early 2000s in Sydney, I, I measured the Sydney Marathon there 
couple of times where I had police escorts and we we just didn't stop for 42 k's virtually, you know. And I'm yeah. talking about go, police cars going in the right-hand lane down streets in Concord, you know, yeah. uh, with me following and just pulling, you know, pushing traffic off the road and it's just crazy. But um, we do it a bit differently nowadays, usually when I go down there because, of course, it's far more central in Sydney now. Um, I measure a whole lot of sections. So this year in Sydney, I spent probably not just measuring. So the measuring is just part of it, doing the measurements isn't the big part of it. There's a lot of documentation work and figuring out things, a lot of maths and that involved. But I would say in Sydney this year, I would have spent close to 40 hours of work um, for the race. You know? Yeah, it's a lot, yeah. We had that fantastic result, you know, on, on the day. Um, but I was so busy, I didn't even realise these guys were running at 207. And, you know, there's still four of them together at at, um, at 100 metres to go. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> So it's just crazy. Yes, yeah, so yeah. on the topic of course measuring too, I've got a question about the Bridge to Brisbane race. Have you have you run that or heard about it often being spoken about being short? And if you know if it's yeah. measured or not and why it may yeah. be short? So, yeah. Um, back when USM, do you remember, did you know USM, which was the Noosa Marathon, the United Sports Marketing, before yeah, Ironman yeah. bought Noosa? USM was set up by Garth Brown and he ran the Noosa Marathon. At one stage, they they organised the bridge to Brisbane, and, and, I, and I did measure it. Um, um, but that was quite some time ago, um, and you know they obviously of course changed and it's gone back to the bridge. So um, I, I suspect it's most probably short. You know? Yeah. Um, people can tell you from your garment if if you're not getting if you're not for ten k's if you're not getting say ten point four or five maybe ten point eight then it's most probably not. Yeah. Yeah, not being measured. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So the, the Garmin's, I think, will operate about point, I say point, half a percent over what a, a measurement will give you. Yeah. Okay. That's and there's been a fair bit yeah. of re research yeah. done on that. There's been a fair bit of research done on that. So in a marathon, it could be 200 to maybe 400 meters. People will measure longer on their Garmin's. Um, I yeah. won't explain why it does that, but, you know. <laughs> Yeah, you're using GPS technology. Remember how much you're paying for that GPS technology compared to the big businesses that actually really need it to be very accurate. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. You're paying nothing, so you get, you know, yeah. But it's good. It's it's a good indication of, of what you can do. So. Oh, absolutely. Hey, um, we might start to wrap things up. We've been sitting here for almost two hours. We, you've definitely given us an exciting insight into comrades. It, it even gets me excited actually to head back to, I haven't head back to South Africa yet as, as ever, as an adult or yeah. a kid. Uh, <laughs> I'd love to head, in, head over there and, and have a crack at this course. I'm not yeah. sure how I'd go. I'd yeah. need up the, up the Ks personally, but um, I'm sure that there'll be some, some people that will be inspired by how you described the comrades and your and like your yeah. your um, knowledge of details and facts is amazing and I think it's I don't know maybe a credit to the generation of your time just seem to remember such uh, minute and fine details which adds to the stories yeah. uh, most definitely yeah. and then uh, yeah all things course course measuring which people always consider and think about but have no idea how it's actually done so I do appreciate your time Don. It's all right. Yeah. No, excellent. Great talking to you, mate. And yeah, you know, it's good to talk about something, uh, you know, to talk about something different. Yes, everybody's got a bit of a running story, but, you know, they're all pretty much the same. You, you work hard and you become a good runner. You know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, that's all there is to it. Um, and and it's an enjoyable lifestyle. So, you know, um, so, you know, I hope you enjoy yours and you know, I hope your listeners get some enjoyment out of say, say listening to the podcast. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I think um, I'll, I'll probably describe this one to listeners as a very easy interview. I just got to sit back and listen to story time with uh, with Don Wallace. So, yeah, you made things yeah. very easy for me, and <laughs> I just need to save that into our uh, program. Yeah. That'll, that'll be an easy one to edit. So, uh, yeah, I appreciate that. <laughs> well, that's good, mate. Yeah. Thanks, yeah. mate. Thanks for your time. Hey, no we'll, we'll be in touch pleasure, for sure. Mate. Yeah, pleasure. And, and enjoy the rest of the day, mate. See ya. You too. Catch ya.